0: Obama said that we wouldn't have the Keystone pipeline because it couldn't pass a climate test. If Obama's climate test was Keystone, Biden's is probably going to be line three. Aha. Call for
1: President Biden on line three. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm one. Down Clowns to the left me. to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yay. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in California And Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing. Planet Earth five days a week, not that it needs a blanket. (laughs) Ha ha. Uh, but Who am I? Brad Friedman, your friendly <laughs> investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Who am I and why am I here? That's an old throwback for you. Uh, hey, thank you very much for joining us here on the Bradcast. Um, got a lot to cover today. Uh, beginning with uh, longtime journalist and climate activist Bill McKibben, who you heard there at the top of the show, Founder of 350.org, Desi Doyen, uh, correct me here if I screw anything up. Of course. Um, longtime journalist and climate activist. Is that, yes. Is that a good way to describe him?
2: Yes, journalist first.
1: <clears throat> right. And then he retired from that, became a climate activist.
2: Well, yeah, pretty much. But he still, he still writes for The New Yorker, and he writes books still. So. Okay.
1: So... Uh, I'm a journalist. Do I get to retire and write books?
2: (laughs) That's up to you. But his uh, organization, 350.org, is pegged to the previous level of concentrations of atmospheric CO2. 350.org is where we were, the sort of sweet spot of the climate for human civilization. 350
1: parts per million.
2: (laughs) Correct. But now... We're at 419,
1: which is the highest in
2: uh, four, four and a half million years.
1: <laughs> yes. So we're doing great. Uh, anyway, McKibben was interviewed by uh, Rachel Maddow on Wednesday night just after the news came out that literally broke as I was introducing yesterday's program. And I, I realized while watching this interview, I, I don't believe I have ever seen Bill McKibben actually smiling.
2: Yes, this is true.
1: Until that interview last night when he was downright giddy, I thought, in fact. I I know uh, you, Des, will cover this, uh, the, the final ignominious end, the collapse of the years long effort, 13 year effort to build the uh, Keystone XL pipeline from the dirty tar sands of Alberta, Canada, all the way down to the refineries in Texas and the roller coaster ride of of the on-again, off-again effort to build this thing as climate protesters and scientists have been fighting like hell against it for all of those years. And just a tiny, 13 years, just a tiny bit longer than we've actually been running our Green News Report segment, Des. Yep. Uh, so how are we going to fill up the six minutes now? <laughs> now that the uh, Keystone XL is officially dead. But the real story here. Now that Keystone XL is actually finally really dead, I think, uh, the real story really is those activists who have fought like hell for so long, so hard under uh, such conditions, really all over the country, sometimes all over the world. Here's Bill McKibben on Maddow talking about it last night.
0: This fight began with indigenous groups and ranchers across the Midwest and it has involved millions of people, perhaps as many as in any environmental fight in American history. And what it really does is show that now there's a possibility of beating these other things. Part of it was the real huge coalition of people that came together. As I said, indigenous groups, frontline communities in the lead farmers and ranchers, but also climate scientists. Jim Hansen, very early on, our greatest climate scientist, said, if we pump the tar sands dry, then it's game over for the climate. And that helped people begin to understand that we really were going to have to leave fossil fuel on the ground. And this Keystone fight was one of the first moments when that kind of keep it in the ground message began to emerge. And now it's at the heart of so many of the battles that are underway. But what was special here was that, and, and the reason correctly, I think, that all the experts said we'd lose, was that big oil
1: had never lost a fight like this. Well, they have now.
2: <laughs> yes, they have.
1: <laughs> and uh, Big time. Uh, yeah, big time. And I recall, Des, when you first reported on the Green News Report, when Jim Hansen had declared, and it was startling at the time, oh, uh, yes. that if we don't leave this stuff in the ground, it would be, quote, game over for the climate. A great quote. It was startling then, it, and but it does seem like people heard it, at least enough people. So I know it seems like these battles are never won, especially when taking on what until recently was uh, you know, the most profitable industry in the world, as McKibben notes, the fossil fuel industry. But this time, the good guys finally did win one, it seems. It seems to me that David slayed Goliath here.
2: Oh, indeed. Um, and and the, the fact that it took a diverse coalition of hundreds of thousands of people pressuring and pushing and protesting for 13 years now um, is a sign of just how difficult this transition is. But it is now made much easier by the fact, uh, by, by all the work that they did mm-hmm. leading up to this point that, you know, we still have to keep fighting. And it does prove if you keep fighting, yes. you can win.
1: Yes. Uh, 13 years. But, you know, and that seems like a long time. But let me tell you something. The folks Folks on the right never give up on anything, anything. They carry out their fights for decades, if True. necessary. Look at abortion. Look at uh, the expansion of gun violence. Look at Obamacare. Look at uh, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security.
2: They're still fighting to cancel those decades later.
1: Adopted uh, Social Security adopted under FDR. They're still fighting it to kill it. So, yeah, you know, I know this stuff can get dispiriting and exhausting. I get it. I understand. But if you keep fighting for what is right, maybe, just maybe, you can win, even when taking on the mightiest, most powerful entities in the world. And make no mistake, the fossil fuel industry uh, is really, at least until recently, the most powerful entity in the world. And to that end, As we'll also discuss uh, briefly in the uh, GNR later today, hundreds of protesters vowing to do whatever it takes to stop a different Canadian based company and their push to replace an aging pipeline with one that is the same size as the massive but now dead Keystone XL. That that would also like the Keystone XL would pump more than 800,000 barrels of dirty tar sands oil across fragile lands, rivers and streams. Those protesters, hundreds of them, blocked a pump station on Monday of this week in northern Minnesota with some people. Chaining themselves to construction equipment before police began making arrests, environmental and tribal groups say Enbridge Energy's plan to rebuild the Line 3 pipeline, which would carry Canadian tar sands oil and regular crude from Alberta to Wisconsin would worsen climate change and risk spills in sensitive areas where Native American uh, Na- Native Americans harvest rice, wild rice, hunt fish, gather medicinal plants, and claim treaty rights. Two protesters spent the night locked down in a boat blocking the entrance uh, to one of the construction sites, while two others locked themselves down underneath, tucked in behind duffel bags, b- beach chairs, water bottles, and clothing. According to Minnesota Public Radio, we're prepared to stay here indefinitely. They said we've got some food. We're ready to fast. We've got plenty of water. Nice sleeping bag, said Austin Cook, one of the two men connected to the bottom of the boat. He said this earlier in the morning on uh, on Tuesday. We'll be here as long as it takes, basically, he said uh, last night. Was kind of scary, said a woman named Sophie, who didn't want to give her last name because she was risking arrest. She spent Monday night locked with another protester inside the boat. She said it was scary because it was intense lightning and intense thunder. It was almost like we were at sea. Mm. Sheriff's deputies freed the two women in the boat early on Tuesday afternoon and led them away. They worked into the afternoon to cut through the device, the sheriffs did, to cut through the device that the two men used to make it difficult to extract them from the trailer under the boat, which bore the name Good Trouble on its (laughs) stern. That's a quote, of course, from the late civil rights leader and U.S. Congressman John Lewis, who was known for encouraging people to get into good trouble in a worthy cause. Here they did so literally in a boat named Good Trouble. The direct action was part of an indigenous-led multi-day event called the Treaty People Gathering, which began over the weekend. Earlier protests uh, uh, protesters had gathered at the headwaters of the Mississippi River, roughly 20 minutes away from where they were blocking that uh, uh, entrance to that construction site. The protesters were chanting, stop line three and water is life. An estimated 1,000 people marched to the site where the pipeline crosses under the river. That peaceful meeting included music, prayers, speeches, uh, including one by, yes, environmentalist and author Bill McKibben, who told uh, AP before the march, quote, the thing about climate change is, It's a timed test. If we don't get it right soon, we will never get it right. Actress Jane Fonda told the AP at the rally, uh, motioning toward the crowd as she held signs with President Joe Biden's image uh, that said, Which side are you on? She said, This is important. This is what we need. She urged protesters to keep pressuring Biden to halt construction so that his administration can study any harm to the environment and indigenous people. The Mississippi River is uh, one of the water crossings for the pipeline. The Biden administration has not yet taken a position on the Line 3 pipeline. Fonda said Line 3 protesters, quote, are going to Standing Rock this place. (laughs) Referring to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is owned by a different company and was the subject of major protests near the Standing Rock Sioux Indian uh, Reservation in the Dakotas back in 2016 and 2017. Uh, though, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the ac- uh, the activists actually eventually lost that one, or where are we on that?
2: Well, it's still in process. Uh, the judge that was presiding over the Dakota Access Pipeline battle uh, has allowed it to continue operating while a new environmental assessment oh, is that's right. underway.
1: That's right. He found, he or he, she, uh, he, found, found he. that it was uh, not done properly. The environmental study was not done properly. It was wrong. However... He's allowing the pipeline to continue until they sort it out. Right. Environmental and uh, tribal groups say that Enbridge Energy's plan in Minnesota to replace Line 3 would worsen climate change and risk spills in sensitive areas where Native Americans uh, live and do work.
2: Yeah, this uh, pipeline, the Line 3 pipeline, uh, would Mm. cross 200 bodies of water. Really? Yeah, including the headwaters of the Mississippi River, from which millions of Americans get their drinking water.
1: I'm sure it will be fine.
2: (laughs) All pipelines spill. Always have, always will. And tar sands pipelines are even worse, because the bitumen oil that they take from Alberta... The what? The bitumen oil, (laughs) I know, is uh, extremely heavy. It's like peanut butter. It cannot be cleaned up completely when it spills.
1: Minnesota Public Radio Uh, News reported that at one point a federal border patrol helicopter hovered about 20 feet off the ground above the protesters, blowing up sand and dirt and rocks to try to get the protesters to leave, which I believe is actually unlawful, or at least it's supposed to be counter to federal policy to use a helicopter that way against peaceful protesters. Why the feds were there, frankly, at all? I don't know. Do you know? That, I think that's an unanswered question at this point. Do you uh, know no, what they No, were no, doing
2: no. Uh, now, official statements say that the helicopter was responding to a request by local law enforcement to help order people to disperse and that the helicopter team promptly left the area after realizing that they were kicking up dust and debris oh, they, near the protesters. Oh, they didn't know. But, you know, the yeah. organizers that were there, organizers. They're within. flying
1: 20 feet above the ground and they had yeah. no idea it was going to be disturbing to anyone. Yeah.
2: And worse, it's on video. And NPR, uh, Minneapolis uh, Public Radio, Minnesota Public Radio Mm -hmm. News Reporter was there and filmed it, and they show that the helicopter was low-flying over everybody multiple times for extended periods of time, and there even appeared to be a passenger filming it all Mm. in the helicopter, so...
1: Yeah. Uh, So surprise, the
2: police statements don't match up with what the protesters actually filmed. Oh,
1: that never happens. Enbridge said that 44 workers were evacuated from the construction site uh, that was initially blockaded in an effort to de-escalate the situation, said Enbridge. In a written statement, the company said it, quote, hoped all parties would come to accept the outcome of the thorough science-based review and multiple approvals of the project. And Bridge says the 1960s era Line 3 pipeline is deteriorating and can run at only about half its original capacity. It says the new line is made from stronger steel. It will better protect the environment while restoring its capacity and ensuring reliable deliveries to U.S. refineries. But here's the thing. When these facilities, this infrastructure is built, when billions is spent on it, this one has cost, I think, $7.3 billion so far. When they do that, they want to use it. They want to use these uh, facilities, this infrastructure. They want to fill these pipelines with tar sands crude, which then gets burnt, which then continues to destroy the planet as, yes, the thorough... Science based studies, thousands of them at this point have told us, have warned us. So, no, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to build this and then we'll talk about it later and we'll shut them down when they build it. They spend a lot of money to defend it and to use it. Nonetheless, uh, more than 300 groups have delivered a letter to Joe Biden uh, last month calling on him to direct the Army Corps of Engineers to suspend or revoke Enbridge's federal clean water permit for the project. They urged Biden to follow the example he set on the first day of his his own administration when he canceled the disputed Keystone XL pipeline, citing worries about climate change. It was that cancellation by Biden That eventually led to Keystone XL's owner, uh, T.C. Energy. used to be called TransCanada. Now they're T.C. Energy. It led them to kill the project 13 years after it began. Biden uh, has not yet taken a stand on line three. Minnesota's uh, Democratic Governor Tim Walz is letting the legal process play out, he says. Biden administration, uh, meanwhile, has declined to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline. In Michigan, Enbridge same company that owns Line 3, they are defying an order by the Democratic governor there, Gretchen Whitmer, to shut down its Line 5 because of the potential for a spill in a channel linking to Great Lakes. Both sides in this current battle are awaiting a ruling from the Minnesota Court of Appeals on the line three on a legal challenge by environmental and tribal groups that want to overturn state regulators approval of the project. The court is expected to rule by June 21 on whether Enbridge adequately proved a long term need for this pipeline. The independent Public Utilities Commission in the state approved the project. However, the State Department of Commerce, along with two tribes and other opponents, argue that the company's demand projections actually failed to meet the legal requirements. So you actually have state bureaus, the Public Utilities Commission, disagreeing with the Department of Commerce on this matter. Well, I guess that's why they're waiting for the judge. Uh, By uh, Wednesday of this week nearly 250 protesters had been arrested another protest against the pipeline is scheduled for thursday in minneapolis outside the office of democratic senator amy klobuchar the group take action minnesota says klobuchar should pressure biden to halt construction of line three here's bill mckibben again on Matto last night speaking about line three
0: If Obama's climate test was Keystone, Biden's is probably going to be line three uh, because, and here's the thing, Obama said that we wouldn't have the Keystone pipeline because it couldn't pass a climate test. Uh, Line three is exactly the same size, about 800,000 barrels a day, and it carries exactly the same stuff, uh, tar sands, crude. So if Keystone couldn't pass a climate test, there's no way, six years later, after we've had the hottest temperature ever recorded, the biggest forest fires ever recorded, the biggest hurricane season ever recorded, after we've had the Paris Climate Accords, there's no way that anybody with a straight face can say that Line 3 is somehow uh, passes a climate test, but Keystone couldn't.
1: Well, who said they had to have a straight face? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, good luck, protesters. Stay safe. And thank you for working to save all of us, and I mean all of us, as in all of humanity at this point. Decades now of pumping and burning this crap has put all of us at very, very serious risk as our climate emergency continues to quickly worsen. Amid an intensifying drought here in the southwest, Lake Mead in Nevada, the nation's largest reservoir by volume, has now reached its lowest level since the 1930s. And you might say, well, okay, so it was this bad in the 1930s. Well, that was when it was originally filled in 1937. It hasn't been this low since it was originally built and filled. As of Wednesday, it reached that level, according to Andrew Friedman at Axios today. The record low, Friedman, no relation, spelled differently, uh, reports, is due to a combination of years of punishing drought that's worsening across the southwest, as well as challenges in managing water resources for a burgeoning population out here. The record low reading, as well as expected subsequent drops in the lake, are almost certain to trigger a federal water shortage declaration later this summer, which would set off cuts in water allocations to several states, as I believe you warned a week or two ago on one of our Green News reports, Des?
2: Yes, that was specifically related to the Colorado River, which has uh, seen a uh, precipitous drop in its annual river flows. And so Arizona and Nevada signed an agreement uh, last year that said, yes, okay, fine, we have to reallocate. The dwindling Colorado River will accept water cuts, and it is approaching the point where Arizona may get zero water from the Colorado River this coming year.
1: Mm, Unbelievable. Yeah, it's Mead sits between the border of Nevada and Arizona, provides water for agriculture and human consumption to seven states. It also generates electricity at the massive Hoover Dam. Cuts in water supplies... Now, to be determined, in August would affect the region's farmers, residents of sprawling cities like Las Vegas. And yes, already the Hoover Dam is operating below its maximum capacity. Friedman reports it could see a further reduction in power generation as the summer goes on at the time we need it the most.
2: Yeah, that's one thing that people kind of forget about hydroelectric power is that in a drought, your hydroelectric dam can't work.
1: Currently, the Southwest is experiencing a deepening drought in Arizona, for example, 86.5 percent of the state. So more than 86 percent of the state is currently classified as experiencing, quote, extreme to, quote, exceptional drought. 86 percent of the state. Those are the two worst categories on the U.S. drought meter. Historical climate information gleaned from tree rings and other sources shows that the region is currently in a longer term, quote, mega drought. That is the second worst such event in at least twelve hundred years. Oh, is that all? Why worry? Let's build more pipelines and burn more oil. What's the downside to that? By elevating temperatures and altering weather patterns, human-driven climate change is making the drought both more likely to occur and more severe, according to scientists. Oh, that's why. That's why we should worry. There's the downside. The ongoing drought is likely to continue to intensify and expand across the west and southwest throughout the summer, putting a strain on power resources and priming the region for uh, a severe wildfire season. Already, Arizona has seen several blazes. A water shortage declaration will be made if the Bureau of Reclamation's August projections show the lake level at Mead remaining below 1,075 feet at the beginning of uh, at the start of 2022. That, according to the Las Vegas Re- Review-Journal. And yes, we're already feeling the pain very much here in California as well as fire season is about to blow up. California reservoir water levels are so low right now that some hydroelectric power plants may be forced offline during the peak of summer wildfire season, according to AP. Yeah, kind of. The state's massive water storage system is vanishing faster than usual. The state's reservoirs are 50 percent lower than than normal according to Jay Lund of the University of California at Davis and more water is not coming this we know because the mountain snowpack vanished two months ahead of schedule and California does not get much rain in the summer if any right. All of this, of course, ahead of the summer heat waves. Now, in the case of Lake Oroville in California, you might remember us uh, reporting on it kind of frantically for a few days, a few years ago. This was the dam that uh, on on Lake Oroville that was overtopping the, the lake was overtopping the dam as the dam was then beginning to break apart and it nearly collapsed entirely at the time. This was when we had, I think it was an El Nino year, that had broke the previous five-year drought, was it, that that eventually broke back then? Yes. So this was the Lake Oroville Dam uh, that was being overtopped, that had so much water at the time that it was in danger of collapsing and endangering millions of people who live right below it. That was then, however. This is now. And the water is gone. The reduced water levels there now threaten catastrophic downstream effects, according to AP. Uh, Des, I believe you told me that the houseboats, uh, the houseboat docks on Lake Oroville have been moved in. Yes,
2: they have to move the docks and the marina for the houseboats. And about, uh, I think, 130, maybe 140 houseboats have to be moved because there's just no place for them.
1: And so they've moved the docks like 150 feet into the... Uh, into the lake from where they usually are.
2: And it's the same thing on Lake Mead and uh, mm-hmm. and, and Lake Powell, where it costs money for these uh, individual recreation marina owners to have to do this, but it's expensive, but they have to keep moving as the water level drops.
1: Of course, that's the least of the problems we have to deal with. Salmon uh, need cold water from the bottom of these reservoirs in order to spawn. San Francisco Bay needs fresh water from the reservoirs to keep out the salt water that harms freshwater fish. Farmers need to irrigate fields here in the nation's salad bowl, as it is called that these farms, these fields are far less productive, of course, without water. Some of the fields will not yield a crop without irrigation. And yes, a lot of you, no matter where you are, a lot of you probably get a lot of fresh produce from California. So your prices are going to be going up as availability goes down. See how far this all reaches? Whatever happens here in California in regard to water affects the whole nation. Also, those lakes supply electricity. So if Lake Oroville falls below 640 feet, which it could do by late August, state officials would have to shut down a major power plant for just the second time ever because of the low water levels. So the bottom line, as uh, Axios notes, the Southwest is drying out. And California's large wildfires could start as soon as this month. Wildfire expert Craig Clements told Andrew Friedman, vegetation is at near record dry levels for this time of year. So anyway, there you go. Just another lovely preview, I suspect, for green news reports and broadcasts uh, in the not too distant future, I'm afraid. Hope I'm wrong about that. But now, you know, consider yourself informed about what is coming. Anyway, we will have more on uh, some of this stuff in our GNR a bit later today. But, yes, also consider a thank you to those folks who chain themselves to the bottom of boats named Good Trouble and endure storms and lightning to try and sleep through the night and federal helicopters buzzing just above their head to cover them in dust and pelt them with rocks to try and intimidate them as they are trying to put an end to this madness for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, quick break and we're back with some politics and maybe some accountability news if I have time, as if all of this isn't already that. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Live from the Crystal Ballroom High atop Times Square It's your Bradcast <laughs> Welcome back to it I'm Brad Friedman Yes, welcome back It is uh, sort of World War II-ish today Yes, it is For some reason Thanks to uh, uh, w- What did Stephen uh, Colbert call him? Uh, Bojo and Joe Bai. <laughs> With the yes. world uh, confronting the immediate crisis of a pandemic and the long-term challenge of, yes, climate change, as the New York Times notes today, President Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Britain on Thursday turned for inspiration to another period of peril and deep uncertainty. After meeting face-to-face for the time i got to stop that. I'll <laughs> never—I won't get—I'll do that for the rest of the show. <laughs> After meeting, after meeting face-to-face for the first time since Mr. Biden assumed the presidency, they announced the renewal of the Atlantic Charter, the, the Declaration of Cooperation that Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt laid out during World War II. And by the way, and I can see the comparison between Biden and FDR, sure, but Bojo and Churchill? I don't, mm, Not uh, so much. Yeah, but I don't blame him for trying, for wanting to make that comparison. While the two uh, current stewards of the so-called special relationship between Britain and U.S. have disagreed on critical issues, on Thursday they stressed the enduring strength of the alliance.
3: I've been my great country many times, but this is the first time as President of the United States. Well, everybody is absolutely thrilled to see you. I'm thrilled to be here. i thrilled here. to meet your wife. I'm told the Prime Minister we have something in common. We both married way above our station. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to dissent from that one. President. I'm not going to disagree with the President on that. Or on anything
2: else.
1: Yes, Johnson says, not going to disagree with the President on anything else. <laughs> Uh, before Biden and Johnson assigned a new Atlantic Charter document, a senior U.S. official called it a, quote, profound statement of purpose that echoes the 80-year-old charter by underscoring the original declaration that, quote, the democratic model is the right and the just and the best one for confronting the world's challenges. Biden himself offered similar comments to U.S. troops upon his arrival in Europe on Wednesday.
3: I believe we're at an inflection point in world history. The moment where it falls to us to prove that democracies will not just endure, but they will excel as we rise to seize the enormous opportunities of a new age. We have to discredit those who believe that the age of democracy is over, as some of our fellow nations believe. We have to expose as false the narrative that decrees of dictators can match the speed and scale of the 21st challenges. You know, and I know, they're wrong. But it doesn't mean we don't have to work harder than ever to prove that democracy can still deliver for our people. For the many who think things are changing so rapidly, democracies cannot get together and form a consensus to respond like autocrats can. But you know better than anyone, that democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it. We have to strengthen it, renew it. We're going to make it clear that the United States is back and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges and the issues that matter most to our future. That we're committed to leading with strength, defending our values and delivering for our people. This is my first overseas trip as President of the United States. I'm heading to the G7, then to the NATO ministerial, and then to meet with Mr. Putin to let him know what I want him to know.
1: The troops cheering for Joe Biden there upon his arrival in Europe and his promise to tell Putin what it is he wants him to know, whatever that may be. But yes, uh, the warm welcome, uh, not just from the troops there, but from Boris Johnson. That may be indicative of how a lot of folks feel in Europe right now, at least if a new survey out from Pew today with some kind of extraordinary numbers is any indication. President Biden has promised the world that, quote, America is back. Washington Post notes uh, as he takes his first trip abroad as president, a Pew Research Center global survey released on Thursday shows that many in advanced economies believe that trust in the U.S. president fell to historic lows in most countries surveyed during Donald Trump's presidency, according to Pew. Under Biden, however, it has soared in the 12 countries surveyed both this year and last year, a median of 75 percent of respondents expressed confidence in Joe Biden to, quote, do the right thing regarding world affairs, according to Pew. That compared with just 17 percent for Donald Trump last year, so 75 percent have confidence confidence in Biden this year to do the right thing regarding world affairs versus just 17 percent last year for Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, they're not wrong.
1: 62 percent of respondents now have a favorable view of the United States. That versus 34 percent at the end of Trump's presidency. 62 under Biden, 34 under Trump. Favorable view of the United States in just a few months. The Pew report notes, quote, the election of Joe Biden as president has led to a dramatic shift in America's international image. Just that alone. The findings come a day after Biden touched down in England on the first leg of a whirlwind trip through Europe on his agenda. Meeting of the Group of Seven G7 in uh, in uh, Cornwall a NATO summit in Brussels meeting with Prime Minister Boris Johnson, which we already talked about, Turkish, he'll also be meeting with Turkish President Erdogan and Russian President Putin. In an op-ed in the Washington Post, Biden cast his voyage as a sort of redemption tour, a chance to revitalize the nation's strained alliances and rally like-minded democracies to, quote, meet the challenges and deter the threats of this new age. The Pew findings uh, suggest that he will encounter leaders whose publics, at least, are confident in his leadership and supportive of key foreign policy priorities. So comparing Trump's uh, first year, as uh, a Pew does here in this uh, survey, they compare his first year, the first year of Biden uh, in the spring survey to Pew's survey numbers under Donald Trump's first year. And uh, the numbers comparing Donald Trump in 2017 to Joe Biden in 2021 are equally stark as those previous numbers. The median percentage of those surveyed those the publics in those nations surveyed 12 different nations then and now on some of the personal traits of the two men. Well, just 16 percent believed Trump was well qualified in 2017. That versus 77% who feel that way right now about Joe Biden. Trump scored high, however, on who the people in 12 countries thought was, quote, dangerous. 72% saw Trump as such in 2017. Just 14% see Joe Biden as dangerous now. Well, they don't know Joe Biden. (laughs) 90% in 2017 thought Donald Trump was arrogant while just 13 percent feel that way now about Joe Biden. As to overall favorability for the U.S., the U.S. Uh, favorability rating grew at least 23 percentage points from last year in France, Germany, Italy and the U.K. And a major uh, and a majority of respondents in all four view the country positively. Among all of the uh, publics, there were 16 in all that were surveyed this spring. German Chancellor Angela Merkel ranks just ahead of Joe Biden in the percentage of respondents who said they trust the leaders decision making uh, uh, decision making on world affairs with a median score of 77 percent. That was for Merkel. Biden had uh, 74 percent and garnered higher rates of confidence than French President Emmanuel Macron. Vladimir Putin, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement was widely criticized among among advanced economies. Since taking office, Biden has sought to position the U.S. as a global leader in fighting climate change. A median of 85 percent supported the U.S. rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. But signs of skepticism about the U.S., And its dependability also remain, according to the survey, among the 16 publics that Pew surveyed this year, majorities or pluralities describe the U.S. as, quote, somewhat reliable, a somewhat reliable partner. The proportion of respondents who said the U.S. is very reliable was below 20 percent in every country.
2: And again, they're not wrong.
1: Alexandra de Hoop-Scheffer, the director of the German Marshall Fund's Paris office, said that while Europeans have been very receptive to Biden's America is back message and his championing of democracy, concerns about America's approach to global decision making have lingered. She said, we don't want to go back to the sort of old patterns of transatlantic cooperation where the U.S. leads and Europe follows. This, she said, is the legacy of the Trump era that we should not underestimate. The survey shows uh, attitudes are mixed about how well the U.S. political system functions. Mixed is a nice way to put it. Uh, If we're only mixed overseas, then we're probably doing pretty well. They should look closer. In any event, in most surveyed uh, in in most surveyed publics in these countries, less than 10 percent of respondents said that the U.S. political system functions well. Well, they are right, at least about that one for sure. Publics in the advanced economies surveyed are largely skeptical that democracy in the U.S. is a good example for other countries to follow, according to the Pew report. And sadly enough, you know, in what I see when reading this, I feel like this is exactly what we have been trying to warn for so many years on this show at Bradblog.com, including, by the way, long before Donald Trump came around. The place where we are right now, we brought this on ourselves. And yes, this is a both sides issue, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, majorities uh, in most places around the world think the U.S., quote, used to be a good example, but has not been in recent years. While up to about a quarter reject the notion that it has ever been a model for de- uh, that it has ever been a model democracy. Fair enough. Yeah. I would agree with that, too. Young people were particularly skeptical in about half of the places surveyed. Political polarization in the U.S. is a major factor, according to De Hoop Scheffer. She said if you have a divided political scene and polarization as you have today in the U.S., then the American president will not be able to have a long term commitment on the international scene. She said, uh, citing Republican opposition to a Biden administration propelled G7 proposal for a 15 percent global minimum tax, for example. He's been calling for that. Uh, Joe Biden has been calling for that, a global minimum tax where everywhere uh, you have to pay at least 15 percent to prevent rich people from hiding their money around the, you know, in other countries. And also
2: for corporations to stop this race to the bottom where they go to developing countries and extort low tax uh, rates from them so that they don't have to pay for them in countries where they actually take advantage of the developing countries and the developed countries where a stable society that they can distribute their goods is required and you need to have taxes to pay for that.
1: And I think that her point here is that, you know, if they work with the U.S. to develop these uh, these policies, uh, like, you know, the 15 percent global minimum tax, they mm-hmm. could put those in, in place in each of these countries only to see America elect... A Donald Trump
2: and reneg on all and, of the agreements, and turn all everything over around. Again.
1: Yeah, yes. roll it all back, and they're stuck with this uh, higher tax rate and. So, yeah, I wouldn't trust us, uh, trust us either. Uh, NATO, meanwhile, has a median favorability rating of about 61 percent. Positive views of the alliance are, quote, at or near all time highs across several member states, according to Pew. That's a finding that The Washington Post said should hearten leaders, including Joe Biden, who hope to breathe fresh life into uh, into NATO. Next week, when they meet in Brussels, the alliance took a beating in recent years when Trump threatened to pull out of it entirely. And French President Macron declared that, it, that NATO was experiencing, quote, brain death at the time. Pew said that its 2021 findings on the U.S. international image were based on data from nationally representative surveys of more than 16,000 adults in 16 advanced economies from March to May. Uh, one more here if I have time to fit it in before we get to the GNR. We have been reporting for a long time now on these sleazy, skeezy, corrupted, long ago indicted on felonies, securities, fraud charges. Ken Paxton, the Texas Attorney General, in addition to serving as the state's top law enforcement officer, even while under indictment. For securities fraud for about six years now, as he manages somehow to push a trial off year after year after year for those charges, he is also now being investigated as well by the FBI for abuse of office after pretty much his entire staff referred him to the feds for criminal charges so sad but more bad news for paxton today the texas bar association is now investigating whether paxton's failed efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election based on bogus claims of fraud amounted to professional misconduct the state bar of texas initially declined to take up a complaint uh, by a Democratic Party activist that Paxton's petitioning of the U.S. Supreme Court to block Joe Biden's victory was frivolous and unethical. However, a tribunal that oversees grievances against lawyers overturned that decision late last month and ordered the bar, the Texas bar, to, yes, look into these accusations against the Republican official. The uh, investigation is yet another liability for the embattled attorney general, according to AP, uh, who's facing this years-old criminal case and the separate, newer FBI investigation, and now a Republican primary opponent looking to make hay out of all of this. It also makes Paxton one of the highest-profile lawyers to face professional blowback over the roles in uh, over their roles in Donald Trump's effort to dele- delegitimize. His defeat. The uh, complainant here, a Galveston Island Democrat, Kevin Moran, uh, he's the 71 year old president of the Galveston Island Democrats. He said that Paxton's efforts to dismiss other states' election results was a wasteful embarrassment for which the AG should now lose his law license. He notes he just wanted to disenfranchise voters in four other states. It's just crazy, said Moran. The Texas uh, Texas's top app- appellate lawyer who would usually argue the state's case before the U.S. Supreme Court, notably did not join with Paxton in bringing that suit, which the high court eventually threw out. Paxton's election challenge was filled with claims that failed to withstand basic scrutiny. And nonetheless, his lawsuit won him political and financial support from Donald Trump loyalists when uh, fresh allegations of criminal wrongdoing had led many in the state, the state GOP, to keep their distance from Paxton. It did not, however, win him the pardon that I suspect he had been gunning for with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, He never got that pardon for these uh, for this federal investigation that he's now facing. I suspect that was actually what Paxton was angling for because he didn't win the case, however, He didn't get that pardon because, you know, Trump don't like losers. Last fall, eight of Paxton's top deputies themselves, very hard right, hard right wing Republicans, by the way, they mounted this extraordinary revolt in which they accused him of abusing his office in the service of a wealthy donor. The FBI is looking into that. And as I said, the solicitor general in Texas, who usually handles cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, wanted nothing to do with this. And so uh, who can blame him? So Texas, y'all picked a real gem here with in, uh, in, in <laughs> Paxton. Unfortunately, by the way, he's also the lead attorney on the case awaiting a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that could come any day now to strike down in its entirety the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, a ruling that is likely to come before its lead attorney, possibly ends up either disbarred and or sent to state and or federal prison, if there is any justice left in this world. We will see if there is. Desi Doyen is up next with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) No, I'm going to c- keep covering Ken Paxton until there's some actual accountability brought against that guy. Yeah. He is he's the guy responsible for so much of the voter suppression that has been going on in Texas for so many years.
2: Accountability uh, would be nice.
1: And it keeps piling up against him, it has got to come down on him at some point. Hope I'm still around to see it. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. The Keystone XL crude oil pipeline is done. It's canceled.
2: Finally, a hard-won victory for tribes and environmentalists as massive, controversial tar sands pipeline is finally dead. Mass arrests at Line 3 pipeline protest in Minnesota. Plus, Biden's infrastructure talks with Republicans collapse and start all over again.
1: All of that... Good news and bad straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I would have thought Trump would be a huge fan of Bitcoin. I mean, it's a way to both hide dirty money and destroy the environment at the same time. What's not to like? Sounds about right. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, so the 13-year dream of a massive 1,200-mile pipeline to ship 830,000 barrels of dirty tar sands oil each day from Alberta, Canada to refineries in Texas for shipping overseas amid catastrophically dangerous global warming due to the burning of fossil fuels is now, what, officially canceled?
2: Oh my, yes, it is. The on-again, off-again, zombie-like Keystone XL pipeline has been officially nixed by its own Canadian developer, TC Energy, after the Biden administration declined to renew its cross-border permit.
1: Are you sure it's dead? Is it really dead this time? Because I've heard time and time again, this thing is dead, and then it comes back to life like Freddy (laughs) Krueger.
2: Yes, it appears to be really dead. It had originally been canceled by President Obama, then revived by President Trump. This marks a big victory for environmental groups, tribes, and landowners across the route who fought for more than 13 years to stop the project, arguing that the dirty tar sands oil it would carry posed an unacceptable risk to drinking water supplies and the environment and would worsen the climate crisis. TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, said that it would coordinate with regulators, stakeholders, and indigenous groups to ensure a safe exit from the project.
1: And if there's anything I associate with TC Energy, it's safe. 50
2: Meanwhile, in Minnesota this week, police arrested hundreds of protesters blocking construction on the controversial Line 3 pipeline, owned and operated by spill-plagued pipeline company Enbridge. Like the Keystone XL, Line 3 would transport heavy tar sands oil from Canada into the U.S. Native American tribes and environmental groups argue the pipeline isn't needed. It threatens hundreds of miles of the state's delicate watersheds and drinking supplies, violates tribal sovereignty and contributes to man-made global warming in operation line three pipelines annual emissions are projected to be equal to 45 coal-fired power plants <laughs> in washington president joe biden has ended lengthy negotiations with west virginia senator Shelley moore capito over his infrastructure jobs proposal after republicans refused to budge substantially on its scope and funding mechanisms biden now turns to negotiating with a different group of both democrats and republicans but as Brad has noted in a recent broadcast, Republican Senator Roy Blunt kind of gave away the game on Meet the Press, letting slip that Republicans have no intention of voting for any Biden infrastructure jobs package because they're planning to run against it in the crucial 2022 midterm elections. The
3: Biden agenda is an agenda that uh, Republicans are going to be talking about, defining themselves okay. based on our differences on things like what is infrastructure.
1: Yes, of course. If they're going to be running on what is infrastructure in 2022, I kind of doubt they're going to pass an infrastructure bill in 2021
2: As we go to air President Biden is on the first foreign trip of his presidency joining the G7 summit of the world's seven largest economies Last month those G7 countries the UK, US, Canada, Italy, France, Germany and Japan all committed to ending financing of new coal power plants around the world part of their pledge to cut greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous man-made climate change However a new analysis finds that in the last year the those same G7 countries committed $50 billion more to new fossil fuel projects mm. than to clean energy projects, mm. spending just $150 billion on clean energy versus nearly $200 billion to finance oil, coal, and gas development. Not good. But some good news. The Biden administration has begun the legal process to repeal a Trump-era rule that ended federal protections for hundreds of thousands of small streams, wetlands and waterways that provide drinking water for millions of Americans. The Trump rollback would have opened up the waterways to pollution from development, industry and agriculture. And finally, Maine has become the first state legislature in the United States to pass a fossil fuel divestment bill, directing its $17 billion pension fund and state treasury to divest from coal, oil, and gas investments. It is a major victory for climate justice groups.
1: We'll take all of the victories we can get, especially the end of the Keystone XL pipeline. (laughs) Indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman and I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. It's over. It's over. Yes, the Keystone XL is finally over.
2: Ding-dong, the witch is dead.
1: But there is a whole lot of uh, similar fights in the days ahead. So once again, thanks to the activists who killed that thing, and thank you for continuing to fight. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyan to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we made it worth your while. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And hey, uh, we don't mind at all. If you stop by bradblog.com slash donate, to throw a little something in the tip jar to help uh, keep us on your public airwaves, talking about the stuff that you need to know about. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there until I see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> It's over, go home.